Hey there, folks. How you doing? Uh, I know we're several days late. Uh, no dollars short, but several days late. Uh, took a little bit of extra work to try and get this podcast um, uh, edited down correctly into the way uh, to the way we wanted it. So uh, it, it'll be worth the wait. It'll be worth the wait. Apologies yeah. for the delay, but uh, no excuses here. We just we're really busy <laughs> and trying to uh, get this edited uh, correctly. So hey, on the bright side, twenty-two days till football season. On the bright side, yeah, sure. <laughs> I could care less. <laughs> I couldn't care less. Um, anyway, so we are Is back. Is it could? Yeah, how it's couldn't. I, I was. I always say could, but it's couldn't. I couldn't because care like, less because like I already care so little that I can't care any less. I couldn't. Uh, so I yeah, couldn't yeah, care right. less. I got you. I've been messing that up my whole life. If then. I could care less, then uh, you know, then I, you actually care about it, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> and I don't really care about football. Sorry. Um, That's right. We're still in summer, though. That's all I want is summer. Uh, so here we go. We're in episode 20 here, uh, long awaited, and um, we hope you guys enjoy this one. We're going to start off with some news. Some news. I'm going to start this one, actually. Yeah, you do you. Um, so we've got some losses here. We're losing. Everybody's losing money right now. Hey. Uh, so we were just filed their uh, paper. I think it's the S1 is the form that when you file to go public, um, and so they just kind of like revealed their earnings and everything and so everything is out in the public and um people are pretty shocked they uh have losses reported at 1.6 billion uh they're valued at 47 billion dollars though i don't know how that's possible or how long that can sustain before the business just collapses so i have a couple i have a couple uh stats here so in 2017 their losses were 890 million with revenue of 886 million. So they lost more than they even brought in. In 2018, they lost. Yeah, but they're expanding though, so you expect something like that. Yeah, sure. So 2018, they lost 1.6 billion and they brought in 1.8 billion, but they still lost 1.6. And in 2019 so far, I mean, we're just over halfway through, they've lost 690 million and 1.5 billion in revenue. So I guess it seems like it's slowing down. Maybe they're getting better. So they, yeah, but they're it's, popping up everywhere though. Right. So they are, I'm sure they got a business um, plan. The, no, the no founder joke. is under some hot water and a lot of people are looking at him weird because he cashed out $700 million oh, worth of his Jesus. shares, which is a little, uh, you know, oh, let me just pull out some money just in case. <laughs> yeah. Let me just just in case. Um, is there any, um, indication of like an IPO, how much it's going to be? Uh, no, they're, they're still like really early. Um, yeah. I imagine it would probably be, I mean, like Uber and Lyft, like those were like attainable to the public. I think they started at like $35. I right. can't imagine it would be too much like uh, away from that. Yeah, but if that guy's ripping out all his money, that's just I, not looking good. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he also, there was like some story where like he personally invested in spaces that were being leased to like WeWork customers. And then he claimed that he was going to be like turning them over to like a company that uh, owns majority shareholders in the WeCo. So he's just like, I don't know, just a couple weird things going on. What if he just broke off and started like another, like his own? Ugh, that would be crazy. <laughs> um, and then another quick one, Uber also just burning cash. Uh, they're, um, I was actually heard this on the, on the radio or something. Um, but they're losing 30% more each quarter while their revenue is only growing 15%. So they're losing money twice as fast as they're gaining it. Is that 
which I is terrible. Like Uber's I, at an all-time high. What, what would be causing that? I, I think it's the, the cost to, like, acquire people and the cost of, um, like, like, they're paying their riders. Like, they're not making enough on drivers. So, like, they need to raise uh, their prices. You, yeah. But I guess one thing they recently did in Providence. So, you know the red jump bikes? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, I use those pretty often. Um, I guess what they recently did in Providence, and this was supposedly, like, a scheme to do it. They like tripled the price of those bikes. So like they're normally like $2 for your first 20 minutes. And then after that, it's like seven or 12 cents a minute, but they raised it like crazy to like 35 cents a minute after that. And so people like outraged and then they dropped it back to like 18 cents, but it's a little bit, they still (laughs) increased it, but without like, you know, but so people are still like, okay, I guess like we'll settle for this. But it was supposedly a scheme, you know, that was yeah. their plan. Who knows? Um, I was going to say, maybe it's all those damn bird scooters that are kicking Uber. Bird, yeah, right. I fucking hate those people that rip around those things. There's people, I saw a video of Michael Rappaport. Uh, he posted a video of these guys on, uh, this guy on a bird scooter on the freeway in Miami. <laughs> like, how stupid do you have to be? My cousin down in Miami works for uh, like a big accounting firm. Yeah. And he said he'll ride one to work every day, like in a full suit. And I just picture oh his dumb ass. Just yeah. Could you imagine just seeing that? <laughs> imagine watching someone fall while they're like all suited oh, out. <laughs> rip that thing up. Yeah. So I don't know. I just thought that's interesting. I don't know how long... Uh, that kind of business model can last losing that much money that fast. Well, they were first of their kind too, right? So they're yeah. the trail. Yeah. I mean, and people are still like handing them money and their evaluation is just insane, but I'm no stock expert. What do I know? Hey, random note. I had the nicest Uber driver to the airport the other day. Did you? Guy was a great guy. He offered me a water. He offered wow. me everything. Yeah. I like the ones they put, they stick like waters in their back seats and yeah. the cup holders and stuff. This guy had to be 60 years old. He got wow. out of his car and opened the door for me. Damn, you had in. the Uber black service there. Yeah, but it was just a regular Uber X. And I was like, hey man, I was like, you don't have to do that. Like yeah. I was, I got to the airport and he goes to get out and I was like, no, 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 no. I was like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, like yeah. I can get out myself. Nice. He wanted that extra tip. Yeah, I did. I actually did tip nice. more because of that. I felt bad. There you go. <laughs> There's still nice people out there. Hey. Um, so what do you got? I got something a little lighter note. All right, good. So, uh, according to sports illustrated, uh, Mike Tyson has a huge, huge, uh, what do you call it? Not a farm. What's the word that they put it in? A ranch, a huge ranch Is out. Tyson. Yeah, out in the Mojave Desert yep. over there. He has a big ranch. Huge ranch. Um, he has a a podcast called uh, the Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson. Oh my god! And when he was on, he was on the Joe Rogan show a little bit ago, and they talked about how he kind of was like trying to get into like the weed space and oh, really? start selling weed. So on his ranch, he grows like a bunch of weed. Oh wow. So he claimed on his podcast the other day that him and his friends smoke $40,000 worth of weed a month. What? Yeah. $40,000 worth of weed a month. That just seems a little extravagant. Guy's fucking burnt. <laughs> he's just hot, to put he's it, hotboxing. To put it in perspective, <laughs> uh, Wiz Khalifa spends about ten grand a month, he said. Wiz Khalifa smokes a lot, yeah, I feel he's like. He's like known for smoking. Yeah. I was like, maybe that's why Mike Tyson's always just like out there and just like... So he claims him and his friends smoke 40 grand a month of weed. And Whiskey smokes 10. 10. I'm calling BS. You think so? I don't know. That just seems I, insane. I got the, uh... Not on you. I believe it. But what, what is that? A lot of research. What do we smoke a month? What? Is it 40,000 a month? Know. 
We smoke 40, like, 40, a we month. smoke 10 tons of weed at yeah. the ranch a, a month. Yeah, it kind of yeah, sounds like he sounds like he's high and he's like, yeah, we smoke ten tons. He could be bragging, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like when you're drunk and like you're making a an outrageous claim to like exaggerate. Yeah, but like, me and Mike smoked fourteen blunts before we got on this podcast. Yeah, you know? like, <laughs> like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. What do we smoke forty thousand? <laughs> 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 but that's the first thing I've seen of Mike Tyson since uh. What the hangover? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a feature of the hangover. I just saw that video and I, I love know, it. I don't know if it's true or not, but they keep doing you, Mike Tyson. Yeah, huh, we'll see. All right. Well, we're gonna get into this interview here with our good friend uh, Larry Wilson, and um, hope you guys enjoy it. A lot of good business advice in here, business lessons. Um, hopefully, a lot of uh, little nuggets of value you guys can pull out of this. Um, so listen in. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, share it with your friends. Pass it along. Tell your mom, your family, your friends, your dog. Um, tell them to listen, and uh, we'll listen to you guys on the next one. Yeah, let us know what you think, too, because Larry has a lot of uh, you know good life advice. And yeah. He's been through a lot, so it'd be cool to know, you know kind of see what you guys think of him. Cause yeah. He's worked for like yeah. huge companies with huge names, and uh, you know he pretty much created a brand of cigarette yeah. as well. Yeah. So uh, and then he was also worked for you know small mom and pop shops, and mm-hmm. but he's always Everything brought the same kind of like mentality to it, and yeah. it's a good mentality to have. And uh, you know it's fun, good conversation with him. Yeah. Um, let us know what you think, and uh, hope you guys enjoy it. All right, everyone. This is episode twenty of Up in Your Business, and. Uh, we're here today with the one and only Lawrence Wilson. Larry Wilson is the founder and managing director of the Wilson Organization, which is a multidisciplinary firm uh, that focuses on um, leadership development, coaching, uh, management, training, uh, and, and a few other things that uh, he can divulge into further. Um, but Larry, it's great to have you here in the studio today. Well, it's my honor, actually, to be here with the two mics. It's been a while. Yes. And I'm speaking into a mic. I'm mic'd all over the place. I know. Mic's everywhere. That's I'm glad it. we uh, finally got this set up. Let me just say, I'm delighted to be here, and thank you guys for having me. You yeah, know, I think the world of you and Focus Forward Media, I think you're doing great things, and you will do even greater things. So thanks very much. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it. Uh, just to give the audience a little context here, uh, we first met Larry um, a little bit over a year ago when we moved into our first office in Providence, and uh, Larry was two doors down from us, and so we quickly uh, got acquainted and developed a friendship that has uh, lasted through thick and thin, That's and right. here we still are dealing with you again. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so uh, my first question is um, just briefly tell us a little bit, uh, you know, where did you grow up and when did you first get into business and Two very different questions, actually. Um, You know, when people ask me, am I a native Rhode Islander? Mm -hmm. I always say, almost. Because I grew up in Mystic, Connecticut, Mm -hmm. right? So I suppose that might mean that I know all the bars and beaches of South County. Yeah. But the reality is uh, that my family is the oldest African-American and Native American family in that part of uh, Southern New England. And we're very proud of that, actually. Um, went off to college in New Jersey, Drew University, small liberal arts college, and then um, majored in economics and music. 
Music was my passion. Economics uh, was what I had to major in so my father could be sure that I would get a job when I got out. Yeah. You still dabble in music. I st uh, yeah, I still write music. We can talk about that. Yeah. But uh, from there, I went on to the Wharton School. I was actually accepted at uh, three different schools, very different. Hart School of Music, Yale uh, School of Divinity, and the Wharton School. Only for the finest people. And I went there pr about four years after Donald Trump was there. Oh, he went But there. he was in the undergraduate school. So you're know. smarter? Yes. I would say so. <laughs> I would I don't, say so. I, I, I don't think it would take much. But <laughs> <laughs> do go on. Yes. Uh, so what were, what were some of the jobs you had growing up and in, in, into your 20s and 30s? Uh, the, the first job I ever had, I was, I was the custodian, the assistant custodian at my church in Mystic, Union Baptist Church. Um, I was not good at it, <laughs> but I was following in the footsteps of my father, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather, who took great pride. That was always a second job for each of them. They all worked there. And, yeah, and they took great pride in the fact that they were so devoted to their church. Yeah. But I wasn't cut from that piece of cloth. Yeah. And so the next job was at uh, the Hartford National Bank in downtown Mystic. Mm-hmm which has been since many years ago, sucked up by the Bank of America. Oh, wow. Um, consortium of banks, if you will. But um, yes, it was Hartford National Bank. And my first, I was a, corn ro a coin roller. What does that, that was mean? A, that was a job? Yeah, you take, the, you take a bag of loose coins, throw them into a, a machine. And you just put and, them into and the... And it would, it would put them in these wrappers. Wow. Well, the very first day I was there, I dropped $100 in dimes down the oh cellar stairs. I still go back to Connecticut on weekends to pick them up. No. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get yelled at by the yeah. boss? I think they, they, they felt sorry for me. I think they, yeah. they thought this kid is obviously handicapped in, in some way. <laughs> First day on the job. That's right. Oh, that's funny. How old were you at that point? 16, 17. 16, okay. Yeah. And then, so talk a little bit about the jobs you got into later on that, you know, we've talked about over the years. They actually, the, the bank was actually disappointed because I, um, I stayed there. I, that was my summer job for the six years mm -hmm. uh, in college and in graduate school. And their hope was that they would put me into the management training program, which they did, and that I would become a, a, a banker and grow through the ranks of uh, Hartford National. And I really appreciated the fact that they had so much faith in me and, 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 uh, but the, the fact of the matter was that once I graduated from the Wharton School, there were other opportunities, and um, I decided to take one of those. And that job was at Philip Morris, the tobacco company in uh, Manhattan. I worked there for 10 years, lived in New York, or lived around New York for those 10 years. What part of New York did you live in? In Manhattan, nice. uh, first on the uh, Upper East Side, uh, then eventually over on the West Side, and then down in the uh, West Village. What was it like back then? Because, I mean, now, if people who think about the Upper East Side is like, talk about money. It takes a lot of money to live there. All right, I'm going to date myself. <laughs> but it was a lot of money back in those days. Sure. My rent on a, on a, it was a tiny one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan. Yeah. With a step-down living room, though, so it had some style to it. But oh, cool. It was a, a Any shag carpets? Shag rug? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, it did. <laughs> There's a whole story that goes with that. We could be here forever. <laughs> But the fact of the matter was I paid $300 and, uh, $295 a month when I first moved in, and it, and it rose to 325 
And then eventually it wanted to rise to 350. And I thought, well, that's astronomical. So I'm going to buy a house in Connecticut. But I could have, at the time I left that apartment, I could have bought that apartment in 1980 for $28,000. The one in New York? The one in Manhattan. That apartment would be worth well over a million today. You could be a millionaire. I know. You know, but guys, you can't live life (laughs) like that. I know, I know. You you really can't. The woulda, shoulda, coulda. We make decisions at the time with the best information that we've got. Of course. But that's interesting. Only 300 bucks a month. But yeah. that was a lot. That was a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what was and, it? And um, instead of doing that, I bought a home in Rowayton, Connecticut, uh, which is a part of uh, the city of Norwalk, yeah. an oh. hour from the city. So I commuted in the city for a number of years on the Metro North train. So I know that whole commute with the weather problems and the mechanical difficulties and all of that. But I bought a house for $97,000 in 1980 and I sold it in 1985 uh, and put a cool $100,000 in profit in my pocket. Uh, nice. Yeah. That's great. And what was what was a typical pay back then, you know, in relation cuz you know you say 300 bucks a month was a lot for rent. Like what was average pay? Well, and, and it's, it's, that's or I guess what were you getting paid? No, at the no, time? That, that was a, that was a, that's a good question because it was the folks at Philip Morris when I first moved in there in 1975. They were the ones that said, "This is how much you can afford based uh, on your salary okay. in terms of an apartment. Mm-hmm. You cannot go over. You should not go over three hundred dollars a month." Mm-hmm. So I came in at two ninety five. Why? Because my starting salary coming out of Wharton, and and frankly, Wharton would garner. You know, better sal- salaries for their graduates than perhaps some other sure. uh, some uh, business school. schools, yeah. or, or certainly in a, in another profession. Yeah, but that salary was that salary was eighteen thousand dollars. Okay, and so thousand a month. Eighteen thousand, and that was considered very good money, very good money. Hmm. And to give you um, a, a kind of perspective on that, um, and I really have empathy for this now. I, I can really understand this. My dad um, was a machinist uh, at a small factory in Connecticut, Davis Standard. Um, he went off to trade school uh, to prepare for that job. He taught that factory how to uh, enter into the extrusion business. To this day, I'm still not sure what extrusion is. <laughs> but my dad learned that in trade school. So he stayed there, and he worked his way up from a machinist um, to a foreman to a production supervisor and, and, uh, and those kinds of jobs. But essentially, when I came out of Wharton at $18,000, my father, my father had worked there at that company for 30 years at that point, and he was making exactly the same amount. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. And, uh, you know, you have to... Uh, today, because I'm, you know, I'm 68 years old, so I'm older than he was at the time, but not that much older. He was in mm-hmm. his 50s. He was starting to look at retirement and whatnot. I have empathy yeah. for the fact that a man could work all of his life, you know, and get paid a salary that was considered um, a decent wage, yeah. but not a great one. Right. Um, but then have his son come out and, and make the same, and make wow. the same money. Yeah, but I'm sure there was some type of pride there, being a father and yeah, seeing definitely. your son come out. Michael, that's this. a very good point because I'm going to tell you, my parents um, 
were not able to finance my education by any means yeah. in terms of dollars and cents. But I have always said that my parents financed me and who I am as a person and whatever success I have enjoyed in school and then beyond school through their love for me yeah. and their commitment to me. Yeah. You know? I got a question. Yeah, about go ahead, Philip Morris. Um, yeah. So when you first got brought on, how did you make that connection? How did they find you or how did you find them? And what were you doing for him? And what is Philip Morris for those who don't know? Yeah, that's true. That's a good question. That's true. Um, Philip Morris is a is one of the largest. It was at the time when I was there the largest tobacco company uh, in the world. Um, they were the manufacturers of Marlboro. They still are. Philip Morris USA still exists in Richmond, Virginia. The corporation has changed its name in New York from Philip Morris to Altria. But one of the divisions, you know, they're they're essentially a food conglomerate, but one of the divisions still is Philip Morris USA. So they made Marlboro cigarettes, they made Virginia Slims, Benson and Hedges, all of the big name cigarette products. Uh, I started in corporate affairs, corporate relations, um, as part of the staff that, supported their philanthropy. Um, they sponsored art shows, for example. Um, they did a lot of goodwill. When you, you know, when you make a cigarette product, that is not a popular product among people. And at the same time, they couldn't advertise on television. Back in those days, we could still be in magazines. We could still be uh, on billboards. They can't do any of that now. Wow. But promotion programs, like the Virginia Slims Tennis Circuit or the Marlboro Cup Horse Race, brought visibility to the products. I ended up doing some of that work, but in the beginning, um, <clears throat> well, I, I ended up as, as brand manager of, of Benson and Hedges and, and uh, Virginia Slim Cigarettes. But in the beginning, um, I worked in that promotion department and they were into the arts. And the way they found me was because the Wharton School had sponsored an art, um, an art, con- uh, convocation. It was after graduation, they were promoting the whole concept of business supporting the arts. And so various corporations were at Wharton for talks, and uh, it was a symposium. I was one of the presenters. Uh, My uh, thesis um, had to do with business support of the arts. Um, And so I spoke a Philip Morris representative, a vice president from Philip Morris, Frank Saunders, was in the audience. Uh, he and I began talking afterward, and he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I've got a passion for the arts, you know, with a music degree and whatnot. He said, come and join our ranks in, our, our, the, in the art phil- philanthropic work that we do. Yeah. And so I did that. And I met some wonderful people, yeah. you know, in, in, uh, doing those kinds of promotions. I flew, the, I flew with Arthur Ashe. You know? I don't know who that is. You don't know who that is? I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is either. First African-American professional, highly successful tennis player. You flew with him? Yeah, on the, on the, company, on the company jet. Uh, nice. I would, they would send me out to, to, to pick up people. Were you starstruck? Or how'd you handle it? Yeah, yeah, yeah First kind big of. star? Eugene Ormandy. Eugene Ormandy was the conductor of the, of the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra, you know? I mean, the list goes, Lady Bird Johnson, you know. Now, who is she? I don't know. You tell me. President's wife? 
Thank you. <laughs> oh, how'd you know Johnson's that? Lyndon Johnson? Oh. Yeah. All right. But anyway, <laughs> so I, I had that kind of exposure. You know, first I, lady, not president's wife. She's the first lady. Yeah, well, she was she the first was. I'll show lady some respect. Under Lyndon Johnson. Former first lady. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no. So, I, I, I mean, so that, that was the kind of work I did at Philip Morris. I became a smoking in health a spokesman for the company. Tele- Smoking is real healthy. Television interviews and radio. <laughs> yeah, we've seen, we saw a few of your uh, TV commercials there that you starred in. Yes, well. Big actor. Uh, and so what did you do next after that? Um, I stayed there 10 years. Um, and and like, the, like young people today, after a while you, you get to a point where you want to try something different. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know? And I think, I, was, I think by that time I was kind of saturated with the whole smoking and health issue mm-hmm. and could no longer justify yeah. um, the, the harm that it could do to you. Right, right, Because right. you have morals. Yes, right? yeah. and I have values. And, yeah. and um, when you start having nightmares about it, yeah. uh, then it's time to go. It's definitely not easy. Yeah. yeah. And in the beginning, how did I justify it? Well, I, I was learning a lot. And I think in the beginning, I really did believe that there was still some question about the link between smoking and some yeah. of the diseases, for example. But by the end, I was, you know, yeah. I, I, that, over. that couldn't be dispelled. So, yeah, yeah. so um, I left, went to work um, for a, a rather small but uh, nicely positioned uh, consulting firm. And actually, that's where I got the experience to design and, and fuel the consulting firm I have today, the Wilson Organization. Yeah. But Ted Gordon had started a, 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 a company called the Futures Group in, uh, outside of Hartford, Connecticut, in Glastonbury. And it was a strategic forecasting and planning firm. Um, and it had some good, strong clients. Miller Brewing Company. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it did work for the government. USAID. What's USAID, gentlemen? You tell me. Yeah, I have no idea. No, it's not. You tell me. Do you, have, you want to take a guess as well? USAID. USAID. Wait, wait, let me guess. Let me guess. United States. Um, is it agriculture? Uh, okay. I'm going to seem like the biggest no, city no, right no. here. Let me. USAID. United States of America. The sun is going down. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let, let me okay, just spoil say it's, it. Spoil it's, it. it's the United States Agency for International Development. I never would have guessed that. And um, that essentially is an agency that goes into developing countries, you know, and tries to spread goodwill, tries to put programming in place um, that can be beneficial to the, the residents there, the people there, the culture there. And so um, they had asked me specifically as a marketing guy, I majored in marketing at the Wharton School, so as a marketing guy, they asked me to design a contraceptive marketing program um, for the women of Liberia. And I did. Did you travel to Liberia? Yes, it had to be tested. So I flew to Liberia, and at that time, the government was... It there was under siege. Um, and there was a coup d'etat while I was there. Really? And I was supposed to stay, stay I think, for something like six to ten weeks. Jeez. And after like the second week, in the middle of the night, with rifles and bayonets oh and fatigues on, Attacks. they woke me up in my, in, in, in my room and said, get dressed right now. Oh, my God. Leave your stuff behind. 
you're going to the airport and you're going to get out of this country. Wow. And <clears throat> that's wild. There were Canadians, British, uh, and Americans on the plane, and probably some other countries too. Yeah. But they essentially took us away on a 747. It was that bad, huh? It was that bad. Wow. Is that scary? And pulling into that, pulling into the airport, the car stopped, the windows were open, and bayonets were pointed right at our, right, right at our, uh, at the car, uh, at the car, at our necks, actually. Yeah, yeah. Just to make sure we were approved to leave. That was my experience. There. These are all experiences, though. That that's insane. That you don't forget. Yeah, right? they add to who you are. You know. That's for sure. Another another great learning opportunity I had as a marketing guy, particularly, was doing some market research and whatnot as a consultant to Procter and Gamble. Yeah. I began talking with General Motors, and we won't go into the specifics of how, uh, specifics of how that happened. Um, but uh, essentially, um, I joined their ranks in their dealer development program to become a General Motors Chevrolet dealer. L.E. Wilson Chevrolet. L.E. Wilson Chevrolet in beautiful downtown Mansfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. We were in business for several years, but it was at a time in the late 80s and early 90s when General Motors w was looking to uh, remove from their um, dealer network the mom and pop operations, uh. the small operations, you know, that, that they were known for, you know, that quality service, that individualized yeah. attention and whatnot. And they were looking for what we call today mega dealers. Yeah. You know, somebody that could, could sell a Ford as well as they sold a Chevrolet, as well as they sold a Toyota, yeah. you know, on the Miracle Mile up in Norwood and whatnot. That's they just what, wanted volume. That's what all of those volume-oriented dealers do. Yeah. So, unfortunately, uh, Wilson Chevrolet closed because General Motors, I had put up some money, um, and General Motors was my partner, and they had the majority interest. So did um, they, like, buy you out, or did they shut you down and just say goodbye? Yes. They, 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 I got, I got most of, of uh, well, at least some of my money back. Could you see it coming, or were you, no. you blindsided? No. As a matter of fact, I got a phone call um, the night we were having a Christmas party in the dealership. Oh, no. And I had to go down and announce that to the... Yeah, it was uh, it was a terrible. And experience. how soon was it? Like when they called, did they say three weeks, a month, a week, tomorrow? Well, I, you know what, Michael, I'm not sure that I remember oh, okay. specifically. Yeah, yeah. It was probably a few weeks. It couldn't have been much more. I stayed on to close yeah. things down, but it couldn't have been much more than that for the workers because yeah. they had to find other jobs, and, they, and of course they were so dispirited at that point. Yeah, you know, you couldn't expect them to do. That's crazy. And it's too bad. We were selling about um, 60 cars a month, and we were, we were growing in size, and the, the goal was 90. But they just decided, and we were not the only ones that they, they, they took out of business. Yeah. I think if I had the experience and the wisdom that I have now, I would have fought that hard, harder, yeah. and I think I could have won. You know, But one, you know, General Motors... Is General Motors right? You right, can't right. fight those yeah. big companies, and it's like the IRS. If yeah, they, if <laughs> what they say goes, that's exactly right. So um, uh, they they wanted the point closed, and the leverage they used was uh, I didn't think we would be getting into all of this, gentlemen. But the leverage they used was if you leave now, 
we will give you most of your money back. If you don't leave, you will get none of it back. And if you fail, you're completely on your own. Uh, okay. You know, and they did really have a substantial interest in the de- dealership. I would have had to raise an awful lot of money through banks and whatnot. Yeah. And been on the hook for that. But really, what happened was I began to tra- uh, to uh, um, transition to the not-for-profit sector. Uh, I became interested in colleges and universities. Um, but the f- and and the first college that I worked for. Um, was a for-profit school. Now, most people don't know that about the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. But oh, it's yeah, a, yeah. It's a for-profit school. And they hired me, uh, because of my marketing background, to essentially be marketing director. Now, marketing director meant admissions director. Mm-hmm. And it, the, the school at the time, uh, this was in 19, uh, 1993, was suffering with some degree of, of a declining enrollment. And so they wanted me to turn that around. And we did. I hired, a, I hired some good people around me. We turned it around. And in the six or seven years that I was there, we, we made it the largest independent art and design college in the country. Wow. Yeah. It's big awesome. now. It's very big. It's a big school. It's very big. So you still get your footprint on there kind of. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. important do you think it is to you know create that team that you know is going to rely on like you can ask them to do anything. Michael, that's an, that's an excellent question. And I can, just as I can give you an example of the school, using the School of Visual Arts um, as an institution that, where the team really worked, yeah. I can give you another example of where I wasn't allowed to bring in another team, my own team. And if you can't bring in your own team and you're, you're sort of, to excuse, excuse my, my French, but if you're stuck with some of the people that are already there, you're also stuck with their attitude. Yeah. They can have bitterness toward you. There was one job I had. There was a, a, a team of folks that I inherited, one or two individuals particularly, who had wanted my job and didn't get it. Now you can imagine, now you're working for a boss. Yeah. You know, who is dependent upon, I was dependent upon them because they yeah. had a sense of history in that particular field and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but they were now working for a guy whose position they wanted. They wanted, and so therefore it was their, their mandate, their objective to undo me. Now, I'm not going to say that they, they, they succeeded right. completely. It, it became a bit more complex than that sure it also makes your job a lot complex yeah. <laughs> a lot more complex but, 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 but yeah. what it does what it does guys is it leaves you with the inability to trust right, right. and definitely. if you think about definitely. i don't care what your job is these days i don't care what field it is it's in i don't care what level it's at if you're going to be a good leader you've got to be able to inspire trust from your people and receive it yeah, well, as absolutely. much as as much as I tried to inspire it, I was not receiving it. Yeah, you know, and that's unfortunate. Through through these jobs, throughout you know uh, all these years, what were you think some of the key lessons you learned that kind of helped you like build your company now and have helped you know um, have helped you grow as a person and as a business? Well, we have to qualify that, don't we? Because what you learn. You know, and the, and the messages that you walk away with as a result of a job really does depend upon that institution, doesn't yeah. it? 
The easy answer is that the larger companies really taught me professionalism. Okay, really how to act. It you know. really taught me um, how to handle people, how to deal with people. Sure. Um, it really taught me how to develop a value system that could be applicable to uh, a wide array, a, a wide array uh, of people. Yeah. A, a really diverse, a really diverse population. Mm -hmm. But let me also say that even the smaller companies and organizations and the not-for-profit organizations um, did the same thing. Essentially, all of that, all of those experiences, all of those different venues, all of those different companies come together um, to teach you how to be yourself. Yeah. And how to be yourself in a positive way that you might be a role model for somebody behind you. Hmm. It, 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 all of that experience teaches you um, essentially how to mentor some folks. Um, it teaches you what's important and what isn't. Yeah. And most importantly, it teaches you the, the, how to deal and how to be authentic um, with people of different backgrounds, of different cultures, of different races, of different uh, sexual identities, of different genders, all yeah. of that. We call that today, of course, diversity, and that seems to be a real buzzword. Diversity and inclusion. And what's inclusion? If diversity is a range of cultures and a range of people of different histories and a, a range of orientations, inclusion is what? Inclusion is involvement and it is um, empowerment. And you need both yeah. to, for, to, to make a person or help a person feel included in their organization. Sure. So... <clears throat> Fast forward on some of these companies I worked for, went to the School of Visual Arts. After the School of Visual Arts, uh, I returned home to work for my Indian tribe, Native Americans in Connecticut, the Eastern Pequots. There are two bands of, of Pequots in, uh, in Connecticut. Yep. One is the federally recognized band called Mashantucket Pequot that owns Foxwoods. I was just going to say that. The, so and the, the other is my tribe, the sister tribe, cousins to the Mashantuckets, direct cousins, but we are not recognized, and so we don't have the uh, benefit of that kind of economic development. Does that mean you don't, like, I know, like the reservations, you have reservations down there? We have, a, the, even we, though you're our reservation, Our reservation is, is uh, 350, almost 400 years old. Okay. And it's 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 adjacent to the reservation uh, that Foxwoods is built on oh, because okay. that was the other Pequot tribes reservation. We can talk about we can talk about what I did with them uh, a little later on. But the reality is that I was dealing with native people. I am part of them. Yeah. Right. From there, um, uh, did some did some more Native American work with a museum that was built down there by by. Uh, the folks at Foxwoods, they're by the uh, Mashantucket Pequot. I went there on a school trip. And yes, Pequot Museum. Right, and we could—I yeah. could give you a test right now, except I wouldn't want to embarrass you. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't remember it. <laughs> the fact of the matter, from there, I went to uh, to Los Angeles, and I, and you know, I mean, there's, there's I my suppose, favorite place. I suppose there's rhyme and reason to how I made some of these jumps, but I went to Los Angeles to become um, uh, 
Chief uh, Development Officer or Vice President of Development for the Japanese American National Museum, another whole culture of people that were focused on um, honoring, memorializing the people that suffered in the internment camps in World War II. So, you, you know, so uh, that's a whole different culture. You know, from there came back and um, uh, went to work for University of Hartford and then Hartford Seminary, you know, as a part of that experience. Um, and then uh, finally to uh, the American Baptist Foundation, where I was, where I was named president. American Baptist Churches is a Protestant organization, right? Headquartered at Valley Forge uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, but that's a religious community. Just like the Methodists are, just like the Catholics are, just like the Buddhists are, just like the, the, the Muslims are, but, the, uh, but uh, I went to work for them. What am I saying? I'm saying that all of these cultural or religious differences, right, taught me about the melting pot called America. Yeah. And that everybody in that melting pot has something to say, something to be valued, and something to contribute. That's what diversity is about today. And we find the companies that call up the Wilson organization and say, can you help us increase our numbers um, in terms of diverse populations? Yeah. They're doing that because they recognize that there's a need for their employee base and their customer base to mirror each other, you know? Yeah. So question, um, you know, as someone who is African-American and Native American, um, you know, and now you, you kind of work with diversity. I'm sure that in the past you have run into diversity issues now. More than, more than just run into them. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm 68 years old and I would say for all 68 years, uh, I or my parents before me were confronted on a very regular basis with issues that related to our race, that, that, that related <clears throat> to our ethnicity, mm -hmm. to, uh, that related to um, our cultural past. And that's the way it would be for any minority group in the country. And quite frankly, every group in America, with the exception of the English and the Dutch, were, were brought here or, or, or came here you know, as a subculture. And we're discriminated against. And that's what we're seeing alive and well at the borders now, which is so sad and sickening, really. Quick story. I was working at the School of Visual Arts uh, in 1997, and um, my father, literally on his deathbed, said to me, two things I want for you. One is, I want you to keep your weight down and take care of your body because he died of diabetes. He said, I was too heavy. Uh, he, was, he was too heavy for too many years, and it got the best. He lost limbs and whatnot. The second thing is, I want you to finish. He said, I want you to finish up your um, uh, work in New York City as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. It's time for you to come home to help your people. And by that, he meant come home to help the Indian tribe yeah. achieve federal recognition like so many tribes have been able to do across the country. Shouldn't say so many, 
gotcha. there's still there's 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 still a good 250 to 300 tribes that are not recognized by the federal government and are legitimate tribes. Yeah, is there a reason why your particular tribe wasn't recognized? That's a good question. That's I guess what I'm talking about. Um, first of all, the recognition process is a very cumbersome one. It takes a lot of money. And so in order, from, from my father's lips to God's ears, because three months after he died, the tribe called me and said, we need, you, we need your leadership. Would you come home and help us with recognition? So I came hmm. home as their CEO. But before I could, before I could you know, kind of pick up that mantle, I needed to raise some money. I needed to raise money to, 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 to um, hire historians, anthropologists, genealogists, lawyers to lobby. And, and to pay myself as well as some of the some, a small staff at the uh, at the tribal office. Yeah. So so we raised. I, I led a team that raised three and a half million dollars initially, and eventually raised another fourteen million dollars. Wow. Um, to get the job done, and boys, we prevailed. Oh yup. You got recognition. We got recognition. That's awesome. Only to, to uh, only to be the only tribe in the United States to have that recognition reversed. What? And, and it was reversed for racial reasons. Really? Absolutely. Racial reasons and to some extent economic reasons as well. You know, now people will deny this and deny that. And, oh, no, it's, it's, it's because con the people of Connecticut didn't want a third casino in Connecticut. It wasn't, had, had nothing to do with that. Yeah. I tell you this story in the context of diversity because this was a diversity issue. Yeah, of course. Because we were a dark-skinned people, a dark-skinned Native American people, there were people that thought, well, he doesn't look like Sitting Bull, so therefore he's not a real Indian. Oh, my God. There were other people that thought, I'll be damned if I'm going to have these dark-skinned people come into such economic development opportunities. Unbelievable. There's, there was that thought. Unbelievable. The congressional delegation went al along with that thinking. And I'm going to say also, quite frankly, nobody ever yeah. wants to mention it, but I'll mention it. It also came down to competi uh, uh, competition and competitive advantage. And I'm sure that our cousins, the Mashantuckets, did not want to see a third casino built right next door to them with Mohegan on the other side. And I will tell you that neither would have been excited about um, having yeah. a third casino in their backyard. Is this documented about the 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 um, the competitive advantage that uh, Mashantucket and Mohican didn't want us to have? Yeah. Probably quietly, but I knew because of my position just who was lobbying against us in Washington. And it was the congressional delegation. It was Joe Lieberman. It was it was um, uh, Chris Dodd. It was uh, our current senator. He was attorney general at the time. Blumenthal, Richard Blumenthal, oh. against us. Um, Jody Rell was the governor. She uh, uh, she was against us. Her predecessor. She was a lieutenant governor who took over the governorship. Uh, her predecessor was John Rowland. He was the governor. He was in favor of, a, of the third casino, 
and pulled me aside and said, Larry, get your tribe recognized and I will ink, you know, a compact with you. And then you can do what you're going to do. Um, And it wasn't, it wasn't decided definitively that we were going to build a casino. And my, my argument was, if you want to negotiate the kind of economic development we do, then we can do that. But don't take away the legitimacy of a people. Yeah. Don't take away the historic legitimacy of a culture just because you're afraid of what we might do as a sovereign nation. It yeah. seems like everyone's caught up on the whole casino thing when all you guys I, want to do is just be recognized. That's right. exactly right. And there are things we could have done to support those two casinos. We could have opened laundry services and, and you know, um, restaurants and, and whatever it might have been. But, um, but that didn't happen. It was reversed. And it was George W. Bush that reversed it. George W. Bush directed Gail North, who was... Um, Gail North, I think. She was the, uh, she was the um, Secretary of the Interior at the time. And, yeah, look that I'll up. fact check. Yeah, I got you. Fact, fact <laughs> check that. It, it was either North or Norton, Gail Norton. So how long were you recognized for before it got reversed? Uh, a year and a half, maybe. Uh, United States Secretary? Uh, she would have been Secretary of the of Interior. Of the Interior, Gail Norton. 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 Yeah. Um, there was a Gail North. I forgot, I forgot who she is and what she does. But, <laughs> but, but they did that. That's crazy. And, and um, yeah, it was very disenchanting. Yeah. And today imagine. the tribe is out of money and we're back at the starting blocks. And frankly, nobody cares. I started to say uh, that, that uh, John Rowland, who was the governor when I first went in, uh, into, my, my, into, my, into my capacity at the tribe, he favored us. But then, unfortunately, through kickbacks and whatever and dirty dealings, he ended up going to jail. Jeez. And yes. And so that's when his lieutenant governor took over and she was against us. It's a bitter story, and I have rarely told it all in full, but this is so many years later now that... um, I mean, I think it's a story people need to hear. I I agree. Yeah. I agree, and that's why I'm I'm talking about it, because we're seeing it at the border now. We're seeing it... We're seeing it in the what I'm going to call Donald Trump's uh, initiative to whiten American society, mm. you know, and you wonder where we're going to go with all of this. Yeah. You know? So do you think that all this background and all of your experiences in life, do you think that kind of helped inspire, uh, you know, the purpose of the Wilson organization and Wilson what or- you do? The Wilson organization started as a leadership development uh, organization. Yeah. And I, I, I started it while I was on the president's staff at Rhode Island College mm-hmm. in an unofficial way. But, I, but many of the uh, folks in my network, or several of, I shouldn't say many, but several of the folks in my network um, at the time were, some, were, were folks that followed me once I decided to go out on my own. And I went out on my own when when the leadership of Rhode Island College changed from yeah. Nancy Cariolo to Frank Sanchez. Yeah. But uh, Nancy had asked me to come there. I had, been, I had been doing a little bit of adjunct teaching, but she wanted me to write a curriculum for leadership, yeah. for gifted students who, would be, who could be future Rhode Island leaders. Um, and in order to get into the, I taught the class once a year 
wrote the curriculum, taught the class once a year, and um, in order to get into the class, you had to be recommended by a faculty member, and it was, it was campus-wide. Yeah. It could be a graduate students, it could be undergraduate students, but they would all be gifted students. And so I did that. And I taught four years of classes, and three of, the, of my former students from various classes have worked for me part-time in this organization. And of course, I network with other organizations and whatnot to get the job done. But we essentially started as a leadership training uh, organization. The jobs that I had prepared me, I think, to be a good leader. I'd yeah. like to think that I'm a good leader. It's up to you guys and your audience to decide whether or not that is true. Do you think he's a good leader? I think so. I think so. But leadership, thank you. But leadership, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what the card says, yes. <laughs> um, uh, but to be a good leader, you have to have values. Mm -hmm. You have to have integrity. Absolutely. Right? You have to have a certain amount of, of credibility and confidence in terms of what you do, what you say, what you believe. And when I say a certain amount, it's, it's not to say that you're going to be, you know, all things to all people. Mm -hmm. We continue to work on uh, our value systems. We continue to work on how we can make ourselves better people. But as I do that for myself, I like to think that it rubs off on some of the people around me. Yeah. So we get asked by companies, for example, to come in and help their somewhat dysfunctional teams sure. become more effective, you know, mm -hmm. become more productive, um, to be less adverse to change. Those kinds of things. Change is huge. That's right. People, I think I think people hate change. People hate change. And change happens, can happen all the time. It has to happen all the time. Yeah. That's what growth is all about. Yeah. But so so it has to be managed, and it's managed through credibility. It's managed through authenticity. Mm -hmm. You know. Now I firmly believe that the best leaders are people who have. Uh, experience joy, but have also experienced sorrow and not, are not afraid to talk about it. You know? Yeah. Um, they're people who are able to find gratitude and joy and fulfillment in every day of their lives. All they have to do is look for it. You know who taught me that? My mother taught me that. She died just a year ago at, at 101. Yeah, crazy. You know? Uh, but she left me with those. If, if, if it was my father that told me to take care of my body and to, to come and help the, the Indians, <laughs> my mother said, you can, you can find joy um, in every day and you can find reasons to be great, uh, grateful. And you know what's, you know what's a, a, a great tool to use in terms of managing change? A great tool to use in terms of leadership? Storytelling. Why is storytelling, I'm going to sound like a teacher, why is storytelling effective? Because it invokes emotion. It evokes emotion. That's for sure. But it's also, stories also contain elements that guarantee someone can relate to some part of it. All right? So if you can relate to a little bit of what I'm saying, do you know what that does to you? It disarms you a bit. 
It makes you a bit more receptive to the change that may be coming. It makes you a bit more receptive to the idea that, gee, maybe Larry Wilson isn't so bad, <laughs> you know? Um, I used to stand in front of my classes, and I stand in front of, of, of uh, uh, leading workshops today, um, and I bear my soul about experiences that I've had, tragic experiences. I, I'm an identical twin. I know you're probably both sitting there thinking, wow, there was once two of you. <laughs> Crazy. You know? um, the fact of the matter is I'm an identical twin. Um, once a twin, always a twin. But I lost my twin in a drowning accident when we were 16 years old. Well, I had to live through that. And I've had to manage that all through the years. But in, exp in sharing that with people in a workshop or sharing that with people in a class when they don't expect it, yeah. it disarms them. And now all of a sudden they start sharing. Now all of a sudden two people that perhaps didn't get along all that well know something about each other and respect something about each other that wasn't there before. So now dialogue starts. Yeah. Right? And the whole thing, and, and now change can start to happen and can start to be managed. That's how we started. We started in leadership. Um, it all starts with storytelling. And that's exactly what happened with one of the early clients I got soon after leaving Rhode Island College. Um, this man was president of, a, of an entity. Um, and he had some um, anger management issues. And um, he had been used to doing his job at, uh, a certain way and leading in a certain way um, until it was determined that it was no longer acceptable. Yeah. And he and I began to talk. Now, when, when he first met me, he was very guarded. Mm -hmm. But by the time we got to the second session, he was skeptical. He was, he was not really into this whole thing that he was being made to do. Yeah, right. But by the time we got to the second session, barriers were starting to melt away. Can you sense that too? You yes. can see that coming down? Yes. And we actually worked together for a substantial amount of time and he made great progress and he's a great guy. And, I, and, and you know, so when people say to me, well, what, what is it about your company that makes you feel good? It makes me feel good when the people I'm trying to help feel good. Yeah. It's all about, the Wilson organization is all about trying to be helpful yeah when we get a call you know people tend to be very general about what's going on or what's not going on whether it's a dysfunction in a team yeah. anger management in an individual you know um, lack of diversity whatever it may be they just say well we have some uh, management challenges or we have some corporate culture challenges they kind of dance around it yeah but it always comes down to the same kinds of things, you know, the same kinds of issues. Now, I love to see uh, corporate culture challenges that result from growing pains. If I can help a company grow, you know, and do away with their, the challenges that they're that getting in the way of growth, that's a positive thing. Yeah. But sadly, more often, companies are in pain when there's bad behavior, yeah. maybe even inappropriate behavior, when there's a lack of diversity, when there's a lack of understanding, when there's a lack of tolerance, yeah. you know, um, uh, when there's 
bias, you know, and, and so many of us, you know, there, there's two kinds of bias, conscious bias and unconscious bias. We all want to kind of hide behind unconscious bias, but the reality is people that are biased many times, more often, more often than they want to give credit to, are yeah. conscious of their bias. Sure. And that's why it's allowed to live. And we go into organizations like that and, and, and try to be helpful. And we are helpful. Yeah. And, but we're helpful in an authentic way. Sometimes people have to hear what they don't want to hear. Sometimes they find that they're not ready to make the changes that they need to make. I had a client who uh, we were working on some diversity issues. And uh, once I got there and, and defined you know, over a few weeks, we were able to define what some of his um, issues were that lacked diversity, where the problems were, what the solutions might Be, might yeah. might have to entail, and whatnot. And I think I don't know this, but I do think that uh, since he decided to sort of put the project on hold for a while, um, it just tells me that perhaps he wasn't ready to make some of the uh, more telling kinds of decisions. This particular um, issue that dealt with diversity, and I think most of our diversity um, um, clients, uh, are, we handle that way. We handle in distinct phases. Now, in terms of executive coaching, you know, that tends to be um, a, 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 a relationship that, has a beginning and it continues to run with the understanding that um, if we reach a comfortable stopping point, then we'll stop. If we decide to continue on, and we may decide to continue on for several months, yeah. you see? Mm -hmm. It depends upon the nature, nature of the beast. Everything's unique. Yeah. yeah. The guy or gal that, that understands diversity is the person who's been confronted with it all of his life, you know? And the person, and, and in terms of leadership, the person who can, can boast success in training future leaders is the person that's written curricula and is a person who takes his life experience and adds that to the mix in terms of leadership, diversity, and executive coaching. And that is exactly what I do. And I've done it for 43 years. You know. Now, what, what fuels a business today and, 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 and fuels the reason to go into business for yourself is a powerful vision, you know, that reflects your passion, makes you feel good about yourself, yeah. is important to you and, and ideally important to the people around you and, and the people who you're, you're reaching out to. Yeah. Those are the reasons to go in your own business, to make a difference and to do it with a certain amount of confidence, you know, a certain amount of joy, yeah. a certain amount of frustration, yeah. and an awful lot of gratitude for the opportunity. <laughs> and I appreciate this opportunity with the two of you. That's Thanks cool. very much. That was much. a great way to end it right there, Yeah, Larry. that was great. Appreciate you coming in, Larry. I'm glad we uh, finally got to do this. I am too. Um, I am too. Yeah, it's so, been a good friendship, yeah, with, uh, between all of us. I'm glad that uh, we met. It was a year, a little bit over, a, little over a year, year and a half yeah. ago. Yeah, and and it's a growing fun, uh, friendship. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I'm I'm the type of person where I sit and just kind of do my work. You know, sit at my desk and 
head head of the computer and Larry would come in and talk and yeah. at first I was like, what the hell is this guy? And then you get to talk and it's like, you're so easy to talk to and like, a decent you, guy. yeah, and you give oh, good advice. All right. Guys, you're, you're decent. Got, you're, you're gonna, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Larry, so, um, I'm going to guess here. People can, uh, learn more about you on your website. Yes. Wil- just no. wilsonorganization.com. Yeah. And you're they, also on LinkedIn. They can find me on LinkedIn, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, websites being what they are, yeah. they can tend to date themselves after a little bit. The LinkedIn tends to be, you know, pretty flush and pretty current. Good. You kill good. it on LinkedIn. Yeah, good yeah. stuff. Thanks again, Larry. Thank you. All right. For all the listeners out there, um, we'd love to hear some feedback. Let us know what you think. Um, check out Larry's content on LinkedIn. Uh, as always, follow us on Instagram at upinyourbizpod. Subscribe to the podcast. Uh, pass it along to your friends. Hope you guys enjoy it and uh, stay tuned for the next one. Bye.